Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. For today's episode, I spoke with Robin Kanner, a Brooklyn-based writer and designer. I first met Robin last month at a live taping of Dylan Maron's podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me, that she did with Katie Herzog, a friend of mine and former guest of the podcast. The subject of the episode they recorded on stage was online shaming and dehumanization. Robin had called Katie trash on Twitter in response to Katie's article in The Stranger about detransitioners. The show ended up being much deeper and more interesting than just the two of them going on stage together and showing the world they didn't hate each other. Robin's story of how she came to be an angry person online is a complicated one that has a lot to do with mental health and addiction problems, and she's written quite movingly about what she's been through in outlets like Wired and Broadly. Robin herself was subjected to some online anger after she wrote a New York Times column arguing against cancel culture in general. She responded in a pretty gutsy way. She put her phone number in her Twitter profile and basically said to her critics, hey, let's talk. What happened next was pretty interesting, and I'll leave it at that at the risk of spoiling my own podcast. I should add that Robin wrote one of the critical responses to my Atlantic article about youth gender dysphoria last summer. I'll link to her article in the show notes, but we didn't end up talking about this subject for various reasons, though we left the door open to doing so at a later date. Just to be clear about this, I think it would be great to have a critic of my work on this subject on the podcast at some point, whether it's Robin or someone else, and I'm looking at possibilities on that front because I'd, I'd like that to happen. That's more or less all the context you need. I'll throw a bunch of links into the show notes. Robin and I are both NBA fans, so after the music break, we mostly just talk about basketball rather than the weightier subjects we grapple with during the first part of the podcast. Also, I profusely apologize in advance for my very embarrassing emo reference. Remember that you can always send me feedback at singleminded at gmail.com. Please, please, please rate and subscribe and everything else on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever other podcatcher you use. Please subscribe to my newsletter, jessesingle.substack.com, where you'll find a lot more content in this general vein. Also, I went on a very weird but strangely endearing podcast called Girls Chat. I think the host could be best described as leftists who have given up on absolutely everything but have a sense of humor about it. It was a two-hour show that dropped this week. Pretty weird chat, pretty fixated on online culture, but I bet a few of you are into that sort of thing, so, so you might want to check it out. I'll put a link again in the show notes, or if you just Google my name and girls chat, I promise you won't get anything weird. You'll, you'll just get that podcast. That's it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robin Canner. Thank you, as always, for listening. Actually, I'm going to take a sip too while I come. So good. Water, water is so good. So Water is incredible. I totally get slept on. This podcast is brought to you by tap water. <laughs> with ice. <laughs> now with ice. Now with ice. I feel like uh, social media can interact in really unhealthy ways with people who are struggling with sort of mental health and, and addiction issues. That's something that came up a little bit in your the live taping you did with Katie Herzog. Can we just talk about that for a minute? Sure, of course. Uh, it's sort of everything when you think about just the past couple years of my life. I think the, the last year that I was sort of drinking and whatever... Uh, I was mad online, and when I stopped, I definitely stopped being a little less mad, and well, 100% less mad, and that was sort of the conversation with Katie Herzog. It was just sort of about how uh, I would just prefer not to be so, not angry online, but literally angry in my life all the time. Like, it's pretty nice being able to sleep at night. 
but there's a very specific like I feel like for listeners who aren't as online obsessives the way we are, mad online like capital M capital O is a very specific kind of mad, right? Right, a hundred percent. And it's a it's a mad online that I don't nef- I don't necessarily want to um, go back to. I mean, it's super it's super weird to me when I see it now because it feels so foreign to me when I see people be angry online. But I know it's still a reality for a lot of people. And how what what is mad online? Is it just sort of like looking well, for stuff to piss you off? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not really looking for stuff to piss you off. It's I think it's less conscious than that. I think it's maybe more so uh, subconscious. I think for a lot of people in their lives who are online, this is me included, there is this feeling that you're left out and the internet is sort of, especially Twitter, and it's not a dig on Twitter, this is sort of a dig on human development in the sense that we want to feel validated as people and the internet is very powerful to validate. Um, And I think that sort of pattern is, is why we have capital Matt online. Why can't it be a dig at Twitter, though? Twitter is built to elicit strong emotions, and, and anger is sort of the most viral emotion of all, right? Well, I don't know if we can we can say it on Twitter is built like that. I think we can say communities within Twitter are built to do that. I, I As a person who used to call out Twitter a lot for things I didn't like, I think it's a little short-sighted to not see our part of the the problem in that you know the communities that uh, thrive on the internet i mean it's all engagement based and yeah you could say that's part of the platform with likes and retweets but it's also part of the community standards or the social norms of the internet that sort of rewards that um so for me it is kind of twitter but it's hard to give the blame on the platform a hundred percent you got to call it the community a little bit too yeah i was um i was talking to an editor of mine and i've been taking a break from a few days for a few days entirely from twitter and he was basically saying you know uh like me he's a psychologist uh Mm. psychology writer and editor he's saying like there are these there's these good parts of twitter these communities where people aren't mad where you can find good stuff so you're saying wait do you consider yourself a psychology writer this is new information yeah well my main beat is like behavioral science basically okay okay cool and I, I mean, there are these like islands on Twitter that aren't dysfunctional where they just like pass around and debate interesting research papers. So is it just about sure. fi- finding a community that isn't psychotic? Uh, no, I don't think it's that at all. Um, I think any community in a platform within that uh, existence is open to be picked on. So I, I, I would not suggest building a, a subculture on Twitter um, and expecting it to be private because it's just the very nature against that. If you, I mean, if you want to enjoy a conversation, you can walk outside your door and have a conversation with pretty much anybody in the world. So I think I personally, in the last couple of years of my life, enjoyed going outside and talking to people. And it's kind of a nice break from just the internet. So you think people are sort of mistaking Twitter for a place you can have actual conversations when it isn't? I think they're mistaking Twitter for the therapist. <laughs> And and that's not. I mean, I did that too. But uh, you know, you're not going to be able to solve your life's problems on Twitter. You're going to have to do that in real life with real people and have that conversation. Uh, you can find community on Twitter for sure, but I don't think you can solve your. I could, at least I could not solve my life's problems on on Twitter. In the in the moment when you when you were into that, what problems did it feel like maybe it could solve? 
validation. It was 100% validation. I think that's very common for the, the rest of the, the world. You know, somewhere around along the way, Twitter was a place that made us less lonely. It was the thing that connected us to the world. It was the thing that uh, if you were at home and it was Christmas vacation and you didn't want to talk to your parents, you could talk online and people would connect with you and it would make you feel more alive and more vibrant, more part of the conversation. And somewhere, somewhere along the way, the more we built social tools, the less we got really social. And that is something worth examining in a lot of ways. Yeah, for me, I mean, for me as a human being, it was just sort of this idea that the thing that sort of saved me from my loneliness became the thing that made me so lonely. And it was sort of this social end of times thing where, you know, I'd go outside and have, have a conversation with a real person and realize that there was no internet between us. We, you know, we were just really people. And I mean, that was just so much of a nicer, more human way to talk. You know, especially when we when we think about Twitter, you really you really have a chance to, to examine you know, 280 characters of words and find the one that you don't like. Whereas listening to this podcast, I might have said something that you didn't like one minute ago, but because the words are moving so fast, you've already forgotten it. You don't have the chance to really sit with the words in that way. Um, so I mean, maybe in that sense, it's it's sort of on Twitter of the problem, but... Well, it's also it's yeah. interesting to think about, like, because if we, in this podcast, if we had an audience of 500 and they were sure. rowdy... And one of us made a point someone like if you made a point I disagreed with, right? I could just sort of smooth that over, move on to the next thing. But there are five hundred people like, fuck you, how could right. you say yeah, that? Yeah. It of just, course. Um, it's it's literally wrestling. Like it's yeah. like it's you know, in a very like postmodern and post-structuralist theory kind of way, it's it's uh, it's a it's a it's a basketball game. It, it's really funny. I went to a I went to a Knicks game. I, I know we're gonna talk about basketball later, but this is such a, a good moment for this. Uh, I went to a Knicks game a couple of months ago. Wait, I, I have a joke. Could you just say I went to a Knicks game and then pause? Of course. Hold on one second. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat. <clears throat> I went to a Knicks game. I'm sorry to hear that. Are you okay? <laughs> uh, well, you know, they lost by like 40. Okay. Sounds good. So I went to this Knicks game and they were playing the Jazz. And do you know Grayson Allen? Yeah. Everyone hates I, him. He's like, I cannot stand Grayson Allen. Like I just, and I, the, my seats were right next to his bench and... He, you know, he rode the bench most of the time because he's a rookie and that's what you do. Uh, but when he did go in, I yelled this line in the stands, just like, don't trip anybody. Because <laughs> that's what he did in the NCAA. Yeah, and I, in, in that moment, I realized I was just like, oh, I'm kind of recreating Twitter in a weird way. Like, this is, this is the thing that I would add him was like, don't trip anyone when you're on court because he was, you know, it's all he did as a player. And I thought that like a, a professional sporting was like the place to be like, hey, Grayson Allen, don't trip anyone. But then I did it and I felt so bad. <laughs> and, and like next to like a bunch of Knicks players and like fans, I was just like, oh, I feel so bad that I did that. Uh, even though I know that I don't like the guy. So uh, being having, a person is, is very strange. Having been to Patriots games for decades, that is probably the nicest thing someone would have said. I know. Like, it's like... It's not even that mean. <laughs> it, well, it was like the first... I mean, when I stopped being an, an angry person i really sort of put the hard line down so it was the first time that i'd shouted like even like a, a remotely negative connotation to a person in a minute and because it was in real life i just felt worse <laughs> it was very strange it, it didn't make me feel good at all you should make it up to him you should go to another game where he's playing and yell right hey grayson and he'll be like what and you'll be like good luck out there good luck out there you can trip somebody if you want i mean i don't want you to but good luck if you, you know was there like a specific moment when you realized the angry online thing wasn't working for you like what was the conversion moment uh conversion moments man that sounds so deep i i mean it wasn't like a therapeutic thing for me i uh, for me it was 
I I got sober, which to me is sort of this very strong line of uh, good Robin and bad Robin. I got sober last summer and I was, I mean, at the point in which I was getting sober, I was definitely like the fun of the anger had stopped, but I was still kind of doing it in a weird way. And, but for me, I mean, July 17th, 2018 is like the day that I sort of recognize that I don't have all the answers and I'm not necessarily um, a perfect person. So that, that day was really the, the moment that I deleted everything that I'd ever done on the internet and just sort of started over um, and got help. You're still on Twitter. Like, how do you make my, my issue is I try to stay off it. Then I go online and like, either I feel the bad habits coming back or I just sort of mm. feel like crap. How, how do you stay on there without uh, reverting into being mad online? I am. Uh, I am still mad online occasionally, but I, I just usually keep it to myself. Uh, when I got sober, my sponsor gave me this sentence and I, uh, I write this sentence a lot. It's a fill in the blank and it just literally says, I have resentment at whatever that thing is because I fear that something will happen. So if I see a bad tweet that I hate, I'll literally sit and write in my notebook while I have resentment at this tweet because I fear that it means that I'm less of a human or I, or I feel that or I fear that it attacks my supposed community or I fear that it hurts somebody else. Uh, so I do that a, a lot and it's just this weird diary entry of uh, pathetic replies <laughs> basically. I know you're being self-deprecating, but I, I think what makes it not pathetic is instead of responding to it by making the world a more hostile place, you're just sort of sitting with it. And like, there's this yeah. whole, um, it's almost like a mindfulness thing. Like you just sure, 100%. Note, I'm yeah. feeling this and that's okay. Right. Yeah. And I think it, for me, it's more powerful to know why I'm feeling it than at, at least in this point of my life, it's more powerful to know why I'm feeling it than to make someone else feel bad or hurt somebody else. But I mean, I've also been on the other side of being yelled at online now. So I think I'm more conscious of how that feels like too. Right. You got, uh, would it be safe to say partially canceled for coming out partially against cancellation? Right. Well, no, I came out, I came out a hundred percent. Oh, not let's give it 99% just in case there's that 1% that is good. Uh, I came out against cancel culture, uh, defining it as, uh, bad for culture. And it's tough to say that I got canceled for it because there was a lot of people who enjoyed it. So for as many people who did who were angry about it, there was also people who enjoyed the piece. Uh, so it's hard to say it was 100% or partially canceled, but I can say I lost friends. The basic response to the piece was that, uh, which I, I thought was great, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks. But people were mad that you weren't pro-cancellation enough. You were saying right. all this cancellation is a bad thing, right? Right. Yeah, I, I, I basically talked about a, a very unique, not unique, actually, it's pretty similar. But I, I talked about a situation in which a person was getting um, scolded at for their views as a teenager. And I felt personally that uh, I didn't have my politics down at 17. And I wrote about the things that I did, which was campaigning for George W. Bush and how I grew as a person. And this is not to say people who campaigned for George W. Bush, they're all bad people. They're not. But I personally grew as a person. And this person who's getting yelled at online should have the chance to grow too. And, and that for sure elicited a strong reaction. That's what I find so weird about this is, um, again, I'll, I'll link to this so people can read the column, but this is basically sure. about a 16 or 17 year old kid in uh, uh, Wisconsin, right? Yeah, West Bend, Wisconsin. And and I'll see grown-ass adults on Twitter, some of them in media academia, if someone like raises a finger to say, maybe lay off the somewhat ill-informed 17-year-old, the response sure. you'll get responses like, 
oh, so you're defending him? Right. It's like we're talking we're talking about a kid talking about here. a kid right now. Yeah. And you know, I when something like that happens, there's a the really strong re examination of, of life that I sort of went under. And part of it was examining the actual comments that were coming in, filtering the anger out, like putting the anger in one category and then putting the actual facts in the other category. Uh and just sort of listening to people. And sort of months after that piece has come out now. I really don't feel bad for a word I wrote. I, I feel pretty strong about the words that I wrote because in pertaining to the story that I was writing, it, it was it was all real. I mean, there's no there's nothing fake in that in that piece. I, I, I truly believe that that kid should have the chance to grow, as I did as a person and as any other person, no matter you know what your life is, you should have the chance to grow, pending that you don't have systemic big issues. Um, right. Yeah. I, I feel like one unique characteristic a lot of, of a lot of this online stuff is like after the people who are mad at you make your case if you then refuse to apologize if you then stand by what you wrote i feel like that makes them even matter sometimes it's like there's sure. a, a ritual you're supposed to participate in yeah there is a ritual and uh i had a lot of people in my life sort of be like well you you made a mistake and i forgive you for this mistake and <laughs> yeah. i had to i had to be like i i didn't make a mistake <laughs> i don't know what you what you thought the mistake was I wouldn't have put it in the New York Times if I had thought I'd, I'd made a mistake. I, I pretty much examined those words top to bottom. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, a very interesting bit of it. But even to now, I mean, I'm sure there are going to be people in my life and people who don't know me who are going to be very angry that I'm doing this conversation with you. But I, I think it's interesting. So here we are. Yeah, you just at some point in the conversation, you just need to you need to cancel me during this podcast so that that yeah. Well, that I mean, I already goes viral. I, I technically did that already, so <laughs> this is <laughs> true. This is, I mean, this would be a part two, and I'm I'm not that kind of person to hold on a grudge. <laughs> so what what prompted you? I what I thought was pretty gutsy was you posted your phone number, and you're basically like, if you're mad yeah. about this article, call me, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, the the interesting thing about that is nobody called who i mean everybody called but they weren't angry when they called i mean i i had my number sitting in my bio for a couple weeks before i tweeted it out and this was like when the the you know ten thousand people were yelling at me and i didn't get a call i mean for two weeks it just laid there and i was looking at my phone like i i can't believe nobody is calling me and then when i finally tweeted out the number i was prepped like i had a notebook i had like i was like ready to to have the conversation anybody wanted to have because it, it felt like a lot of the anger was about other voices not being heard. And I, you know, I was there to hear them. And the first call that I got was this librarian in the East coast who wanted to talk about the men, her life. And I, I was totally caught off guard. I was like, sure, well, we can talk about that. But is that all you're here to call for? And she was like, yeah. I was like, okay. So, I mean, we ended up having this glorious 20 minute conversation. And since then I've taken about, I don't know, maybe a hundred calls at this point. Yeah, and, and they all, I mean, other than one, one person called me an idiot and then hung up very quickly, but I, I was like literally in the middle of watching a movie. So I was just like, pause movie, hello, you're an idiot, okay, hang up, back to the movie. So it didn't really affect me that much. But the rest of the calls have been really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I really liked about that, the Wired article is it, it was only eight months or so, but I worked for a suicide hotline in Boston. I yeah, volunteered yeah. for one. Sure. And I think you're when you show up at orientation for something like that, I think a lot of sure. people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be like talking people off the ledges of buildings. Yeah, that's not gonna... what you do. Yeah. No, they, yeah, they yeah, disabuse you of that so quickly. They're like, sure. 
most people just want to talk. And I think um, until you're in that seat or until you do something like you did, the, the, there's a heartbreaking quantity of just loneliness and need to sure. connect. That's like very sure. much unmet. I feel like. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I have, I volunteered at two suicide hotlines before and going through the orientation yeah, I mean, there's specific guides of what you should and shouldn't do on, on those calls. Um, it's been interesting because I'm, I'm part of the people who have called that hotline and I'm part of the people who have taken that phone call and sort of talked people down. And a big thing that I do when I'm on those calls is just sort of hear people and talk to them. And just being on the phone in the past few months with this experience, sometimes I end up having two-hour conversations with people and it's very beautiful. Other times I, I'm asleep and I, or I'm at work and I, I don't see what's going on and I see like a five-minute voicemail. And it's really somebody just trying to talk about their lives. Like I just went through a breakup, whatever the thing is, I'm having a hard time with drinking, like whatever, whatever the, their problem is. And just the ability for them to leave that voicemail, I can hear from the beginning of the message to the end of the message, uh, their voice have this little sigh of relief. So I think as people... As people, we used to go to the internet to get this sigh of relief. And, and I'm thinking of Reddit, I'm thinking of Twitter, I'm thinking of uh, Tumblr, I'm thinking of places like that where you really got that sigh of relief there. But now I think there is sort of this turn of the wave where people need to have real conversations with other people and, and realize that it's hard to be a human being and that it's okay to talk about it being hard to be a human being. Yeah, I mean, not yeah. to be like a, a human psychology nerd, but I, sure. part, of, part of me just feels like I, I think well-structured websites or, or websites with good communities could always sure. fulfill some of that need, but there is like, sure. we're, we're evolved to hear other people's voices and to communicate 100%. via voice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the best part of life is being able to hear somebody out and have the conversation. I, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but that little bit of how, you know, a word is sort of there forever for you to analyze it. So if you see a tweet that you don't like, but you sort of go on, if you keep seeing that tweet as a, a retweet or a favor or something like that and it keeps popping up your timeline, that thing that didn't bother you has now bothered you extremely. And it could be the circumstances of uh, you're waiting for your food to come and it's been slow, so you're getting angrier or you're waiting in a line, whatever the thing is. Like the circumstances of your surrounding have changed and you've decided that you're mad about it. Uh, the good thing about a phone call and the good thing about even this voice right here between us is the word is gone. Like once you see the word, the word is gone and that's kind of beautiful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Something about the like, it's not It's not quite fleeting, but you're saying you don't have stuff you don't, you don't have like bad stuff thrown at you over and over and over until it elicits a reaction out of you almost. For sure, exactly. When you were calling those hotlines a lot, what, what was that experience like? What was it, what was it doing for you? Like, how is it helping, I don't know, keep a part of you alive sort of? You know, I don't, I can't say I remember a lot of the calls that I had with people because I don't, but the ones I do remember having, I remember them just being a human voice. I mean, I wrote about this in my piece for Broadly, but uh, pretty much like right before I got sober, I was on this phone call with a woman who was just talking about like the fruit that she wanted to pick up at her market. And my life had gotten so far away from fresh fruit. <laughs> like that was the <laughs> last thing that I'd cared about that moment was strawberries. But here she is like sort of talking about strawberries. And I thought that was just so lovely. And when I think about my entire experience on those lines, it was talking to people who had something figured out that I didn't have figured out. But I sort of refused, at least my ego refused to hear them or follow their 
life advice or anything. Uh, and then when I got sober, it was like, you know, talking with somebody who is eons smarter than me about mental health just sort of caught me in my ego and pulled it down and I was able to have like a real beautiful moment. And anytime you can get something that helps you move forward, I think is a really great thing. And, and for me, moving forward was going back to the basics of fresh food. I like the idea that we all exist on some sort of spectrum with like fresh fruit on one end. Yeah. The, the opposite I mean, of fresh fruit on the other. If you care about fresh fruit, you probably don't have a lot of problems in your life. <laughs> you, you're probably doing okay. Uh, so, yeah, for me, even now, I have strawberries in my fridge, and it, it's nice. Uh, so, yeah, those small little human things, I think, are just so important. I was going to say, I feel like like one proxy for sort of how uh, how well I'm doing is how often I go to this, like, Korean fruit market up on – near where I ran into once, mm. actually, up on Fulton. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's like the more often you make those little trips just to like buy stuff for the next couple days, I feel like. The yeah, totally, totally. And you could have the, you know, every time I go into my grocery store, uh, my block, I have this conversation with this guy who works there. And I mean, the guy really loves peanut butter. And one time I was buying peanut butter while I was in there. So he started talking to me about peanut butter. And now every time that I go in there, we have this like nice conversation about what we ate with peanut butter. And that's <laughs> so, so stupid, but so human and so real. And I'll tell you, when I was getting like yelled at online, one of the first things that I did was went and talked to the guy about peanut butter. <laughs> you didn't care about the internet. And right. you know, that, was, that was kind of wonderful. The other side of that is like, I'll, I've had times where I've gotten into some sort of dumb argument with someone and then I'll look at their, um, I'll look at their profile and it's like some 20 year old kid in Ohio right. who's listed his mental illnesses in his profile and is right. clearly struggling. And it's just like, sure. What a what a dehumanizing machine this is that this is my right. interaction with someone like that. Right. He's going through shit I couldn't possibly imagine. For sure, for sure. And I mean it's tough. I uh it's I mean, I do my best to not do it anymore, and that doesn't mean that I I don't do it, but I I really do strong ways. But even now, sitting here, like I could be like, Jesse, I know you've shit on my friend once, how dare you? But I don't I just don't have a desire to do that. I'd rather have this conversation. And that to me feels way more better i mean i walk away feeling better because i know i probably shit on somebody in your life and just the ability to let that go uh, i think is is part of moving forward well to me it's it's it has to do with public versus private right because like right. there's various like journalists and people i have dumb i've had dumb online interactions with mm. what i've what i've started trying to do is just like emailing either offering publicly to have some sort of private conversation with them sure. or emailing them and right it's sort of i don't know it's like they don't they don't owe me any conversation but if you're so sure that there should be some sort of conflict between us or that i did something wrong right wouldn't it make things better on that if we discussed that privately and tried to figure out what's going on sure yeah but the, the thing about that I, I alluded to this in my wired piece but there is a reward for being angry and and that reward is engagement. I, I can right. tell you right now, my engagement has dropped dramatically since I stopped being mad online. Uh, but I, I don't care. I mean, I'd rather get fresh fruit and care about that than whether somebody's following me or not. So the the priority shift, I think, when when you let that when you let that go, or sort of stop yelling at that twenty year old in Ohio, and start, why well, I almost made a real world pun there. When you stop being mad online, and you start being real. Here's here's the internet. <laughs> Uh, this, is what this, is, this is what happens. Yeah, not you know, 
but I mean, even real world road rules. I mean, that went from like a, a technically real TV show to like a scripted thing. So everything changes. Who knew we were going to talk about real world road rules here? I used to love. Um, oh man, this is yeah. I'm just thinking back to like circa 2000, like Seattle real For world. For sure, a hundred percent. Yeah. It it gave me a very like unrealistic view of what it meant to like be in your early twenties because that's just sure. <laughs> and nothing nothing was ever good as that. Even when I was at those sort of parties, or nothing was ever. No, yeah. It's sort of. I mean, it's a whole other thing. But I um, they idealize all this young adult stuff, and I think that sure. screws people up because you get to these different situations. Like, yeah, it's going to be this. It's going to be super fun. All the sure. social interaction is going to be easy. Sex and romance are going to be easy. Right. And it's just like. I like I like I guess like depictions of that that reveal that it can be complicated. Totally, or it could be boring. I mean, one of the, yes. the big things about those shows and any show now that's on TV is stuff has to be happening like this, like this, like this, like this. Uh, I mean, I, I consider myself a little probably as a as an quote unquote artist, and I feel weird using that word, but I don't know many artists now in 2019 who are allowed to take a few years off. Uh, but and every artist back then, I mean, there was that boring time and there was that time you didn't do anything. There was that time that you just sort of spent time with yourself. We don't really have it anymore. I'm thinking particularly of like when, when John Lennon went out West and uh, had the lost weekend. Nobody's really allowed to have a lost weekend anymore. It's really depressing. And I, I will <laughs> also, I think what worries me more is like, I, I'm working on a book and in theory I could spend two or Wait, three hours. Wait, you're working on a book? What's your book? <laughs> Get the yeah. exclusive here. What's the exclusive? What's the it's, book? Not, it's not a secret. It's in my Twitter bio. It's about okay. sort of why we believe these shoddy TED talky ideas about behavioral science oh, and like that they're going to fix the world and fix racism, fix okay. inequality and stuff. But I think what worries me is like I'm in a lucky position where I, I could, if I wanted at the moment, spend a couple hours a day like reading for fun and reading right. a novel and just this is such a cliche thing to say at this point but the extent to which my attention span is shot and that i just find myself like clicking around online like i yeah i'm becoming like a little bit of a luddite or technical right. like i think this yeah. stuff affects us do you meditate at all i've tried to get into it 12 times but okay i, yeah. I take it do, do you yeah i meditate daily and it works uh, I it was a hard start, but once I got into it, it worked really well. Uh, Although I think if you yeah. ask if it works in a binary way, that probably means you're not in the proper sure. mindset. So it, sure. it worked. It got tangible yeah, results, yeah. right? But, yeah. Well, I mean, for me, when I say does it work, I mean, did something that usually would irritate me did not irritate me throughout the day, and if that, <laughs> you know, that to me is it working. Uh, I, I I've talked about this a little bit before in other conversations with other people, but. Uh, for me, I know when something's wrong when I can't fall asleep at night. Like that's sort of the, the line that I know something is deeply wrong is when I cannot just lay in bed and fall asleep. Uh, it's usually a sign that I'm not spiritually fit or calm or anything like that. So meditation and, and doing that practice that helps me fall asleep at night, which is really is like the most important thing in my life. Yeah, I um, I can never fall asleep. It sucks. It's just uh, it yeah. It's rough. Wait, so you maybe... can't fall asleep. No, it's, it's been a thing with me forever. Like it takes me hours uh, and I need to, I've tried to address it a few times, but um, yeah, yeah, without boring anyone, I think that's another reason why maybe meditation would be a good habit for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's not boring at all. I, I had a very hard time sleeping at night for a long time. I think that was drinking as it put me to sleep, but yeah, it's, it's very strange, but I'll, for my entire life, it's never been this way, but I'll, I'll be like mid movie and just go to sleep. And that's, like never been a thing in my life. I've always had to finish the thing or do the thing. And 
and now I weirdly just go to sleep. Sort of related, but I want to ask you about, uh, you did a piece for Broadly about uh, running. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this is another area where I sort of have my own personal stuff, but what, what's your elevator pitch for why, you know, people who have tendencies toward anxiety or your depression or getting stuck sure. in their heads should, should exercise? Well, I don't know if I have a pitch about exercise, but I have a pitch about um, an addiction, which is that I, I'm very much an addict. And uh, once I stopped doing drugs or drinking, it, I had to find something else to be addicted to. And those two things were AA meetings and, and running because both of those things exhausted me. The, the more I ran, the more that I was tired throughout the day, uh, which meant that I was able to fall asleep. The more I went to meetings, I was emotionally tired. So the pitch is, do you want to fall asleep at night? <laughs> do some do some stuff on your mind and in your body. Can I run my? Um, I, I'm actually curious to talk about AA because I I, um, yeah, yeah. I I have no personal experience with, it, but I did some reporting on it, and the theory I came across is like people get really a bit too obsessed with like, oh, does this part of it make sense? Is it too religious? Mm -hmm. But but just the act of having a community of like minded people with the same goals sure. is that a big part of why it made a difference for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's sort of taboo to talk about AA while not being in AA, but for, for this conversation, uh, how do I put this? You know, in, in the first few steps, it, it's really sort of talking about giving yourself up to a higher power. And that higher power for me is my sort of own thing that I developed. But for other people, it is God or how they understand him or whatever that higher power for them is. And I've certainly met a lot of people who hate that idea of, of giving that up. I remember the first time I walked into a meeting, this woman was like, I mean, last summer I was like in full black pants, black hoodie, shades, and it was, you know, 90 degrees outside. <laughs> so I was like walking into a meeting sweating. And this woman was like, this is your first one, huh? And I was like, yep. And I sort of sat in the back and didn't really say anything. And eventually she, she turned back to me and was like, so we're going to get up and we're going to hold hands and we're going to say a prayer. And it's going to be very cultish and weird, but just let it go because you'll feel better. And I, I just didn't care. Like I had no, I had no caring at all of what, how weird it would feel or anything. I was just like, sure, if this helps me sleep at night, I'm in. And I did it. And sure enough, I slept at night. So I kept going back and kept going back. And, you know, I have nothing but uh, good things to say about it. But for people who have, you know, a God complex, um, which I think a lot of addicts and alcoholics do, the work is really pushing that aside, maybe not letting it go, but pushing it aside so you can move forward and tackle your own stuff. I mean, there's 12 steps and the first three are really about letting it go. Um, so you still got nine more to go after that. So, yeah. But yeah. there's, there's something kind of beautiful about that idea of like... I. Saying a prayer, holding hands with strangers in a circle is not sure. the kind of thing you do day by day. And we're like, sure. we're both in an irony soaked age. And I think we're both members of a pretty irony soaked generation. Sure, right? of course. Yeah, yeah. So like, I've had trouble with just like, stop, stop judging everything. Stop, you sure. know, wondering how you look, worrying about right. it. So I could, I could see the power in that is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, it is very powerful. And I mean, for me with a person who, I mean, my ego was the side of, size of the world. Uh, I, for, there's three things here. Um, well, my ego was the, the biggest thing in the world. I didn't want to let that go. And when you, let's take a story architecture for the sake of this conversation. Um, when you write a story and you're in it, chances are you're either the hero or the victim. But there's another role, and a role that I found once I got sober, which is sort of this anti-hero antagonist type of person, where I'm not always the best person. And this is a very 
David Foster Wallace is his water sort of bit here. But I'm not the, the center of the world and somebody else around me is going through their own thing. And if I'm able to see that, then I think I can be a better person in the world. And there is so many, there's so many qualities within this is water, but there is that, there is that element of, of being a human being and recognizing that somebody around you is having a hard time. So when you're holding hands with them and sitting in a, you know, serenity prayer type setting, it's, it ends up kind of being beautiful because you're able to connect with somebody else who you know, is going through their thing on your left and on your right. Yeah, I, don't, I just think it's really beautiful. I feel like the more opportunities we have to forget that other people are just other people or to or right. come up with reasons they aren't really other people, the worse they right. are. Yeah, and, and there's something very romantic about being a good person. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> so, so strange to say, but there is. I, I, do you know the Serenity Prayer by any chance? Is that God grant me the serenity? Uh, yeah. To the one no, accept. Oh, sorry. Do it. Uh, uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, the three elements there is, you know, what I can do and what I can't do and knowing the difference. And yeah, it can sound very cultish and whatever, but it's also a very human thing. I'm just like, what do I have control over? Do I have control over that thing? No. Okay, well, I'm going to go to sleep at night, so tomorrow I can do better in it. And it's that it's like that simple for me. Oh, especially if you have like sort of neurotic tendencies like that. For sure. Inability to recognize like I can't I can't do anything about that. I need to let yeah. it go. That, that, yeah, can yeah. Para- that can paralyze you, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I made an amends to somebody maybe f- six months ago and, it, and four months later they responded. And those four months in between that could have sucked for me. But I, I let it go. I mean, that was the program was letting it go. And, and when they made the amends, I... I wasn't obsessing over it. I was like, oh, that's that's nice. Thank you. But that little moment of like, I'm not going to spend eight hours wrestling in my bed angry about this thing and fire off some tweets about how much I hate somebody. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to sleep knowing that I did my best and try to do that best again tomorrow. Uh, and that right there is something that I had lost in my life, but recently found and is really like a piece of gold. <laughs> like, I really do feel like I have a piece of gold in my pocket. That, that just made me think of like some of the, the this sort of maximalist cancel everyone, cancel them with, with, with severe prejudice things. Sure. That, it's also not helpful for the people doing the canceling because they're never going to get what they want, which is like right. for the person who offended them to like disappear or to right. completely disavow that opinion. Like, right. It just doesn't, it doesn't help anybody. Yeah. No one's going to heal your trauma. It's just not going to happen. Like No one is ever going to heal your trauma, but you and maybe it won't ever even get healed but you'll just be able to let it go i, I think musically do you ever listen to elliot smith at all <laughs> that's very apropos but just, yeah, no. just like his most famous ones uh, okay so you've probably heard waltz number two yes okay so like waltz number two is sort of this perfect song for me and that uh he's really just examining the faults in his life um, and the relationships between his mom and his father. I mean, the whole song is about this, you know, fucked up relationship with his stepdad. And uh, the way he lets that go, I think is really beautiful. I mean, he just emotionally lets it go in a song. And anytime you can do that, that's that's technically moving forward. It's just sort of pushing that aside a little bit. Um, and that's good work. I feel like you... Uh... That made made me think of a bright eyes lyric. Yeah, I'm ready like, for that. <laughs> no, but I can't come back from Elliot Smith with bright eyes. That's like yeah, yeah. No, I, I want it. <laughs> what do you got? 
It's what's what's like I've made peace with the fallen leaves. I see their same fate in my own body. I'm like I feel like I'm 20 years old right now. Oh my god, this is the best thing ever. I can't believe I got you to quote Bright Eyes on this podcast. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> this is a disastrous first for single-minded conversations. Yeah, no, I man, the the poetic of emo songs of 2005-2009 that included lyrics of leaves falling from trees is probably <laughs> yeah. my favorite thing in the world. Easily uh, my favorite thing in the world. So let's uh it's in a minute let's take a break and then come back and talk basketball, but is there Cool. Any, where can people find your stuff online? Uh, do people want to find my stuff online? They do, I'm sure okay. they do. Okay, well, it's just my name. It's it's Robin Canner. Uh, that's pretty much everywhere. Um, Robin with a Y. And uh, say hi or give me a call. We can we can talk about things. Yes, I want I want at least one of my listeners, one of my tens of millions of listeners, right, to call Robin and then email me and tell me how it went. That'd be great. Well, I can record the conversation and send it back to you. It will be like a pin pal for, for conversations. Yes, and then we can do a follow-up podcast about the recording. And so so meta. Okay, so let's take a quick break, and we'll be back soon. And we're back with Robin Tanner. So, Robin, I just wanted to first thank you for recognizing on Twitter a super important anniversary, which is KG. Uh, Anything six. is possible. Exactly. That was that was good. Yeah. That was solid. Uh, very important moment in my own basketball life, and they one of the all-time great NBA Finals moments. So, you're a basketball fan. You yeah. you grew up in small town Maine, but uh-huh. in Instead of being a Celtics fan, as God intended, <laughs> you were a Bulls fan. How did that happen? Well, I'm a Bulls and Celtics fan. I should clarify that. Uh, uh, but uh, so my dad is from the south side of Chicago. Uh, he grew up there, um, was very much into uh, sports. And um, yeah, when when I moved to Maine, which I mean, I was born technically in Ohio, but I moved to Maine when I was like two years old. Uh, I quickly got into basketball. It was Really, I mean, it was the favorite thing that I ever had in my life. So, I mean, I was born in 87. Jordan was at his prime, but at the beginning of his prime in like 91, 92, 93. So literally at three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like those years that I was sitting there glued watching a, a TV was, was basketball. And for me, that was the triangle offense. It was Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, and Luke Longley, uh, BJ Armstrong, Steve Kerr. I mean, all these classic Bulls players that I just... I mean, I grew obsessed with, and it wasn't just watching the game. I played the game. I I was there, you know, at the courts in in my hometown every waking hour that I wasn't in class, basically. What was it like sort of being a fan of Jordan? I was going to say during his prime, but he sort of had multiple primes. He had multiple primes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I played, 2003, I was in high school. I just started high school. And, no, I was in middle of high school in 2003, and that was when he was sort of leaving in the Wizards world. And it was incredible. I, he was just, you know, he was number one. And I have all of these memories of my life of watching him. I remember I remember the last shot. I remember being in the living room when I was watching that. I remember uh, the 95 series where Orlando beat Jordan when he was wearing 45. 
and like classic cancel culture story is Nick Anderson. Do you know Nick? Yeah, yeah. So like classic cancel culture story is Nick Anderson missing the four free throws and losing for the magic. Uh, but the series before that, he had actually stole a ball from Michael Jordan and won the game because of it. So uh, that whole arc of him and Nick Anderson and Jordan was, a, you know, a thing that I really enjoyed. The way Jordan shit talked, I just loved. And it was such a part of uh, growing up in Maine, this very small town playing basketball was, you know, this very and one YouTube before YouTube clips of like basketball players, you know, doing the most insane shit. Uh, oh, did yeah. you, were you a white men can't jump fan growing up? I I never saw it to be. Oh, I mean, I if you like recently. basketball shit talking, yeah, oh, I mean, okay. yeah, I saw it a, a couple of years ago. I went through this Woody Harrelson phase and I saw it. But I mean, the first basketball film I saw was the Omar Epps Loving Basketball one, yeah. which is like classic, beautiful basketball film. Uh, yeah, Omar Epps is number one in, in my book. It, it's sort of funny how like Phil Jackson has gone from being. The Zen master, like, genius tactician, to now people are like, the game I don't like his Twitter. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, but also like the game. It seems like the game has sort of passed him by a little bit. Yeah, he's like yeah. this. Um, well, I guess this is true of like any what discipline or craft. Like sure. things change, and not everyone can keep up with it. Maybe right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the triangle offense performs as well as it did back then. <laughs> no. Uh, but I would be very fascinated if a team pulled it off. I mean, I, to be honest, I think the Denver Nuggets, which is a team I don't really like because Jokic just drives me insane um, and in a really good way, but it does drive me insane. But that team itself is really slated to take on the triangle offense with him as a center. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just really, really into basketball. <laughs> well, why does why does he drive you insane? Because he's just this like big lumbering hulk of man meat and the yeah. league hasn't had that for a while. And I like it. Yeah, he definitely reminds me of Yao Ming, just bulkier. Uh, I think what the, there's a couple things working against Jokic. One, he's young, and I just feel like he's going to be a little bit better when he, when he gets stronger. Two, I just don't really like the Denver Nuggets. Like, I've never been hyped on the Nuggets. Three, I just was mad that he was giving the, the Trailblazers a run for their money. Yeah. Um, it, I just wanted Portland Trailblazers to get to the Western Conference Finals so much. But that four-overtime game where he played, like, 56 minutes... I was sitting at home like on my couch being like, I can't stand Jokic, but damn, that's respect. Like he's yeah, exactly. like he's he's seven footer and he's you know, he played the most minutes of anyone. Uh so I, I got I got massive respect for him, even though I can't stand him. Same for James Harden. I don't I don't really like Harden or the Rockets, but I got respect because of his skill and when he got hit in the eye, he still played his heart out. So yeah, I got I got respect for that. It's uh, it's hard not to respect hard, and even if you don't enjoy yeah. his style, there's just the the effortlessness of his game is just sure. incredible. Sure. What do you think of the potentially offensive to some idea <laughs> that LBJ has supplant the LeBron has supplanted MJ as the goat? Okay, do you think this? I'm I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to it, but I think it's complicated. But I want your take first. It it bothers me. I hated LeBron James out of the gate. The same thing that Jokic was cocky and big. But when LeBron did the decision, there was nothing more that made me more angry. Like the decision drove me insane. I was so angry at it uh, when he went to, to the heat. And over the years, I've just grown to love him so much as, as a player. Um, incredibly fond of him getting that title, title in Cleveland, even though 
it's hard to admit it, but that was a fluke win for. Oh, it was incredible. Cats. You knew uh, Dray- Draymond and everything. Yeah, it was a fluke win, but that doesn't make the fact that when he got that ball and he was emotional, that wasn't the most beautiful thing in the world. I, I really wasn't a massive fan when he was on the Heat, even though I mean a big reason for that was because he took Ray Allen and Ray Allen was critical in the Celtics and. Allen sort of turned his back on the Celtics. Old beef, but still near <laughs> my heart. But LeBron now, as a human being, I think he's incredible. I think that the work he's done with his school is incredible. I, I, had, I don't think he's even remotely near Michael Jordan as far as a player. But, um, wait, before you continue on that, I just realized there should be a term when there's beef that you still have years later. Shouldn't yeah. that be jerky? Because it's like deserved. <laughs> yeah, like beef jerky. Like I, there's, there's, there's no jerky on it. Uh, so you've got some jerky when it comes to the decision into Ray Allen. Yeah, I, I mean you you got it too as a Celtics fan. The Ray Allen thing's got to drive you insane. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't happy to see him go, but that that yeah. team had like really weird chemistry and dynamic issues, uh, especially with like Rondo, who I don't for think sure. Really liked. Um, oh, I liked Rondo. I liked Rondo. Oh, no, no, I mean I loved him as a player, but I think he he's sort of a little bit Kyrie-ish in terms of having for like, sure. a really mercurial personality. Totally, totally. So, yeah, I got love for the Celtics. I got love for Ray Allen. A little jerky on, on his fact that he went to the Heat. I'm also frustrated he never got a... I, I'm not even answering your question. Okay, back to LeBron versus Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan is number one. Uh, the rings are, is, to me, all that matters. Uh, LeBron's a great individual player, but Jordan knew how to craft a team, and, and that is why he'll always be number one. LeBron's can, just I, not getting six rings. I can understand the argument. I just... I, I think there's... Maybe this is too much of a hot take, but like you sure. put even prime Jordan in the I league. I feel like now. this is the least of the hot take that we've said on the podcast. Oh, exactly, so far. right. <laughs> that no, but I think like the, the the sheer amount of talent in the league right now. Yeah. And um I, I just think it's hard to compare between eras. And I, sure. I feel like people are too hard on LeBron that he you know, he he took some really bad teams to many totally. fi- finals, which totally. is not an easy thing to do. And, and had LeBron had good front offices and good teams, it, right. it would be a different conversation. Yeah. Uh, I, I recently rewatched Moneyball. Uh, have you seen that? Yeah, I watched it on a plane like last year, actually. Yeah. yeah, and sort of how Billy Bean crafted that team. Like, if, if LeBron had a front office on on that regard, first Billy Bean probably wouldn't have recruited LeBron James, but if he did, and then he had the extras around him, it, it would be a different front office. Um, I feel bad. The the sort of best front office that. James has had is, is with the Heat, which is an, insane to me, but it's true. Um, but I'm glad he got one six. He's never he's never going to get six rings. He'll never have he'll never have the iconic moments. Because when I think of Michael Jordan, I think of him holding the ball, crying. I think of him, you know, the shot on Elo. I think of all of these classic NBA Finals winning moments. And for the most part, I really have one for LeBron. I have the I have the Cavs. I don't have him holding the ball. I don't have anything. I just have him with the Cavs. One. So as far as iconic moments go, moments go in, in the championship, it's just it's Jordan for me. All right. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, the, I'm. I would even make the argument that you partially convinced me is what I'm saying. I okay. Okay. I feel like if you choose anyone to bet MJ, it's tricky. I just think I think yeah. people are a little bit biased by. Sure. There will never be another Michael Jordan in terms of right. what Michael Jordan was. And, right, exactly. Yeah. You know, I wasn't as close to I was I was always a Celtics fan only. Sure. But just like sure. even in his late prime, just like those mid range turnarounds that were just completely 100%. unstoppable. It was incredible the way he refined his game. And that's why I like Kobe too. I mean, Kobe was so good at refining his game. I, I think for for the next few years for LeBron it will really be if he 
uh, figures out how to take that 15, 17 foot jumper. Um, but Jordan Kobe figured, I mean, I'm such a big Kobe Bryant fan, but those two. Yeah. Do you, you know that? Hit- well, I hate him because I hated him. Right. Wait, yeah, yeah. But also because he destroyed Jason Tatum's game, apparently. Wait, really? I didn't even hear about this. Yeah. The, uh, the theory is that the lack of sophomore year development or second year development on Jason Tatum's part is because he worked out with Kobe over the summer and then he developed all Kobe's like low percentage shot bad habits. That's what that's what Celtics fans believe to have happened. Holy shit. I did not hear that. Uh, It's very sad. Yeah. I mean, Tatum's number one. I hope he I hope he becomes a franchise player. I think he could. He's just too. He's like he seems to have all the pieces. I don't know. This year was sort of a mess, but yeah. Anything else, either basketball related or otherwise, you want to add, or do you have, do you have any? Do you want to say something to all the people who are now going to cancel you? Any all anything right. else at all before we end? Well, you know what? If you're if you were angry about this podcast at the beginning, you probably haven't made it to the end. Um, and if you have, I, I hope you realize that we were able to have a human conversation. Doing this podcast was not an endorsement of everything that you Jesse have done but it's more and you know you doing it for me isn't an endorsement on on my side um it's literally just two people having a good conversation about the internet and basketball and honestly with everything going on in the world isn't that like not the worst thing in the world it is not and uh yeah I appreciate you doing it it was it was very nice to meet you in person and every time I've like actually I haven't had that many situations where I've met someone online who I'd had any kind of beef with um Online. No jerky. No jerky. There's just no beef. jerky. Yeah. But no, it's just it's like entirely different. And um, sure. yeah, maybe at some point we can talk about the the stuff we disagree about. But in the meantime, sure. the the moral is human conversation is good. Thank you very much for coming out. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you. That'd be awesome. Yeah.